Thank you, guys. Good morning, everybody. And and the, um, one of the things I love uh, about Advent and and this season here at Discovery is just how many people are involved in uh, making all these different elements of Sunday morning happen, whether that's readers or uh, the band, um, just all the participation, I think, of this season makes it one of the things that I really enjoy. So thank you to everyone who is a part of making uh, this morning happen. Well done. And then to everybody for getting into the spirit to uh, honor Rolly in particular by wearing your ugliest Christmas sweater. Well done. Um. Uh, I have to admit that this morning I'm a little bit distracted. So I showed up at the office today, uh, as I normally do on Sunday morning, and, oh, I need to dismiss the youth. See, I'm totally distracted about uh, so many things. Anyway, I I showed up at the office this morning, and um, it looked like, uh, uh, like a small child maybe had gone through uh, tornado style and, and uh, messed up a couple of things. And I thought, oh, that's weird. And then uh, immediately get a phone call from Rolly saying, hey, uh, do you know where the Sunday morning computer is? And I'm like, uh, I think I might know where it is. So uh, somebody broke in over the weekend and stole some of our stuff. And so it's kind of an interesting way to start the morning. We need to give a big thank you to Jason, who on the fly has done all the slide stuff today. Thank you, Jason. Uh, so we do actually have things like lyrics and, and some of the PowerPoint stuff. So that was a, a heroic effort. Um, but, you know, just one of those things that happens that, you know, then you have to kind of sort out. So I just want to start this morning uh, with some prayer, and then um, hopefully we can kind of move forward together uh, from that place. So pray with me. Heavenly Father, we, um, uh, we confess that we have all these ideas about how this Uh, season is supposed to go. We have all these ideas about how our lives are supposed to go, and and all too often things come that interrupt those ideas. And so it is frustrating to have to deal with the the aftermath of uh, something like this, but at the same time there is a gift here, this reminder uh, that ultimately we are not in control. It is not our stuff, and uh, you are the one who provides uh, what we need. Um, God, we pray that uh, whoever it was that, that took this stuff, that um, their heart would be changed, that you would meet their, their needs, God. We also uh, forgive them and just sort of release that to you. And, uh, and then, God, we also know that in addition to this, each one of us individually brings something into a space like this on a morning like this. And, God, we ask that you would hold those things for us, our worries, Uh, our concerns, the stress either of life or of this particular season, God. Would you hold that for us so that we could be present here now? That we could uh, experience, even for a moment, the deep peace that you do offer us. And the peace that we are reminded of in this season. That you came in the form of Jesus as the Prince of Peace to make it possible for us to be in right relationship with you, to bring peace between us, this broken relationship. We turned our back on you, and yet you've gone to these great lengths uh, to be in right relationship with us, to bring us back home, to uh, allow us to once again live in this place of peace, where we don't have to worry about um, 
justifying ourselves, making ourselves right, earning approval, God, we can simply just rest in the truth of what you have done for us. So God, we, uh, we bring all this to you today, and again, we ask that you would speak to us, that you would uh, even challenge us um, to something new, to something fresh, and to a greater experience of your peace. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, a couple of other things that I need to talk about here before we get into Ruth chapter 3, which is where we will be this morning. Uh, today is our second to last Sunday with Rolly and Danny and kids, and at the end of our gathering today, we are going to have a moment to commission them and to send them out. So uh, my hope is that, again, this is a communal thing that we all get to be a part of and, and uh, keep that in mind. Um, there's also a, a journal uh, that should be out on the connections table. It, this is a great place to leave a note of uh, encouragement or affirmation for uh, Rolly and Danny um, as we send them off. Uh, I think it would be really uh, special if every single one of us had an opportunity to write something in there. And then next Sunday is actually their last Sunday uh, with us. And after the gathering, we'll have a little reception for them over uh, at the downtown center. So please keep that in mind. One other thing I wanted to, to tell you about, you know, this fall as we spent a lot of time talking about our mission and vision as a church. We've uh, introduced the idea of, you know, one of our, our goals in the next couple of years is to be a bridge-building church. And uh, we want to be a community that, that uh, builds relationships with different organizations, people, uh, and even churches here in the city and area that are doing great work. If you were here last Sunday, we talked a little bit about some of the things that we've been doing in the area of generosity and some of the organizations that we've been partnering with during this season. And that, I think it was really cool to be able to see uh, some of the fruit of that. We've also been building relationships with some local churches. One of them is the Anglican Church here in Davis called Christ the Redeemer. It meets at Christ Church on Sunday evenings. So uh, like us, uh, not a church with a permanent home. And we've actually been in conversation with them about how to utilize our downtown center more and how to share that space week. So they are actually going to be uh, having their Christmas Eve service at our downtown center. We, this year, because of staff transition, are not having a Christmas Eve service. Uh, but we are invited to participate with them in their uh, Christmas Eve gathering. So if you are in town, if you want to be a part of a Christmas Eve thing, uh, there will be one at our downtown center, 4 p.m. Uh, on the 24th. We'd love to have you be there. It will be different than what we do, but I think it will be a really good different for us. Uh, same truth, same uh, a story that they are telling, but a different way of engaging in worship. So I'd love to have you be a part of the Christmas Eve service with Christ the Redeemer. All right? If you have any questions about that, feel free to ask me uh, about that afterwards. We'd love to tell you more about that. Ruth chapter 3 is, uh, is where we are this morning. Uh, I want to begin with this. The spring break of my freshman year of college, I was invited to go to the movies, and I, it was spring break. I had nothing else to do, so I thought I would go uh, along with my friends to see this movie. This was a movie that I knew very little about. Uh, but apparently a lot of other people were really excited to see it because when we got to the theater, there was a big long line all the way around the theater, and we ended up being in the back of this line, which meant that we had to sit in, in the second to front row off to the side. I think I was on the very aisle, so I had to do that thing where you're like trying to watch the movie like this, and so we get in there, and I'm already kind of grumpy because I hate sitting in the front at the movie theater, and I'm like, oh, my neck is going to hurt after all this, and what even is this movie? And then the movie started, and I immediately had this very deep sense of, this is amazing. I have never seen anything like this before in my life. 
and the movie keeps going. It continues to be incredible. Uh, I watch the whole thing, and as the credits roll, I'm like, this is like one of the top five best movies that I've ever seen. And I went back the next day, in fact, because I wanted to see it in a better seat. I am talking about the original Matrix movie. This was 1999, all right? Um, it, you, there's like a requirement for Gen X pastors. You have to mention the Matrix once a year, at least, in a sermon. It's part of the, the thing that we sign. Anyway, uh, for those of you who are on the younger end of our community, you uh, have probably never been in a, a non-Matrix world. But for those of us who were alive in 1999 and lived through this, this was an incredible moment. We had never seen anything like this. It totally changed movies forever. And it was a movie that kind of came out of nowhere, right? It didn't have like a lot of buzz. And then it hit the theater and the thing just exploded and was wildly successful. And so, of course, they decided to make more. <laughs> Some of you know where this is going already. Uh, so they announced they're going to make this thing into a trilogy, and then they did this unconventional uh, thing where they uh, filmed both the second and third movie at the same time and then released them in the same year, just a couple of months apart. And I was so excited. We had waited four years for this movie to come out. The anticipation had been building. This is, I think, one of only two times in my life where I bought a ticket to opening night for the midnight showing, stood in line, I'm in the theater. This is like, oh, this is going to be so great, the next Matrix movie. And then the movie started, and it was terrible. <laughs> and I was so disappointed, right? Four years of waiting for this sequel, and then the third one turned out to be not that much better either. And I know, like, for the nerds, there's, like, a huge debate about whether or not the next two movies are good or not. I don't want to get into that this morning. The point is, the point here is, this, this four years of anticipation, right, this build-up to this moment and then this deep disappointment in what the reality of it actually was. This makes me wonder, reflect on the reality. Our culture is a very impatient culture, right? We hate waiting for things. And I wonder if one of the reasons we hate waiting for things is because it's, it's almost like a self-protective measure. We, we, we just want to get to the end. We want to find out what it's going to be so that we know, is this going to hurt? Is this going to disappoint me or not? One of the big themes of, of Advent is waiting, and waiting is one of the places where God does some of his best work. It's oftentimes uh, in seasons of waiting that there's this very fertile ground for our character, for our faith to develop and to grow. Each year we come to this season, we purposefully place ourselves in this posture of waiting. And some of it's kind of fun, right? We do the thing where we open the calendar each day and we have this countdown going to, to Christmas morning. But even more than that, Advent is a, a reminder that we are in between people. We, we live in this in between moment in the big story of salvation that God is telling. A lot of the big plot points have already been told, but the story is not finished yet. And so almost by definition, we are people who wait and we are formed by this waiting, this anticipation of how the story is going to end, Jesus' return. I'm going to come back to this idea here in, in just a few moments, but 
for uh, context and just as a reminder, we're in Ruth chapter 3. We've been in this little Old Testament book called Ruth during Advent this year. And it might seem like, why are we doing this? This is very disconnected, right, from Christmas and, and trees and lights and all this sort of thing. So a couple of reasons why we are here. First, we're spending time in this Old Testament story of Ruth because there are actually all kinds of connections to the story of Jesus. And this morning, we're going to see one of the strongest connections as we move through chapter 3. Second, the story of Ruth invites us to journey with these obscure characters. Ruth and Boaz and Naomi are people who are operating in great faithfulness to what God has asked them to do, to what it means to love God and other people, but they are doing it so far below the radar of the power and politics and influencers of the day. Ruth was not the kind of person that had that blue check mark next to their Instagram account, right? Faithful people operating in obscurity. I think this is a very good gift to us during this moment in time where we are so caught up in fame and notoriety and, and being noticed. And then finally, we've been here because this is a story about an outsider, Ruth, the Moabitess, right? Referred to eight times in this way by the author. The Moabites were the enemies of Israel. It's Ruth who becomes the hero of the story, who becomes part of the line of David and ultimately the lineage of Jesus. And so this story is a reminder of how God can use anybody, but I think even more than that, it is a reminder of his love for everyone, right? He can use anyone. He uh, has this deep heart for those who might feel or find themselves on the outside. And therefore, I think has a lot to teach us about our heart towards those who might be considered outsiders. All right, Ruth chapter 3, the, the scene begins like this. This is one of the most... Um, bizarre scenes maybe in all of the Bible. So this is going to be a lot of fun as we move our way through this. It begins like this. One day Ruth's, mother, Ruth's mother-in-law Naomi said to her, my daughter, I must find a home for you. Naomi puts on her Jewish mama matchmaker hat here. I must find a home for you where, where you will be well provided for. Now Boaz, with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. So... Wash, put on perfume, get dressed in your best clothes, your Christmas suit, and then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are there until he's finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying, and then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. All right, this is the beginning of this very bizarre scene. Now, Ruth is the hero of this story, and certainly her name is attached to the title of the book. But in many ways, this is a story about the transformation of Naomi. You go back to, to Ruth chapter 1, where we're first introduced to Naomi. We discovered that she is a refugee. Her family has had to flee from Israel to this place called Moab in search of food. There's a famine in the land. She's a refugee, and then when they uh, get to Moab, her husband and her two sons die. So now she's a, a refugee, she's an outsider, and then she's also a widow. And, and the sort of key phrase in the opening scene is this, Ruth 1.5, Naomi was left without. Naomi was left without. And a significant theme of part one of the story is Naomi's 
disappointment with how life has turned out for her and her deep disappointment with God. The end of chapter 1, she says, Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Mara means bitter. Because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. One of the things we see is Naomi is, is grieving, and God never condemns her. The author never condemns her for her grief. Throughout Scripture, we see the importance of what we might call naming the lack. Naomi was left without is an apt description for many characters that we encounter in Scripture. It's an apt description for how many of us often feel. And in some circles, there can be this, uh, um, like, don't talk about that, right? This sort of mentality, we don't bring those things up. But naming the lack is vital to a healthy relationship with God. In the Psalms, we read things like this. Awake, Lord, why do you sleep? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face and forget our misery and oppression? We are brought down to the dust. Our bodies cling to the ground. Rise up and help us. Rescue us because of your unfailing love. All throughout Scripture, we see this brutal honesty, naming the lack. I think we know, if we are being honest, that deep, deep in our bones there's something off, right? There's something missing. In this post-fall world, there is something that we all lack. And so one of the first steps in our journey of faith is to name this, to honestly speak about the lack in our life, because it's only in truth and honesty that we can fully relate to the divine. So Naomi in Ruth chapter 1 is grieving, she's naming the lack, and one of the things we learn from her is that grieving does not equal a lack of faith. Faith does not mean that we never grieve. Grieving is a proof actually of a depth of love, a great capacity for the love of God and other people. But there's also, there's also this need to then move in and out of seasons of grief. For some of us, there may be here as an invitation to move into a season of grief, to again name the lack, to be honest, and to finally bring up some of these things that we have been in denial about for so long. But on the other side of that, after grief comes healing and a new perspective, this new capacity for compassion and love. Because a lot of us, we can get stuck in between those two places. I've shared this quote before, but it, it's worth repeating here. Erwin McManus writes, There are two kinds of uninteresting people. There are those who have not suffered, those who have not named the lack. And then there are those who are trapped in their pain. Suffering is all they know. They wallow in despair. They are all wounds and no scars. All wounds and no scars. We see here, as we get to chapter 3, Naomi is starting to make this transition from wounds to scars. Ruth certainly has taken the initiative. She's been able to provide for them. She's gone to glean uh, in fields and, and find food. And then not only that, but in, in the process of gleaning, she's encountered this good man named Boaz, this Boaz who's so generous to her. He doesn't look down on her because she is a Moabite 
widow. In fact, we find out that he's heard all about her. And then he sees her hard work. He continues to extend this great generosity, this great kindness towards her. And this is one of the central themes, the central theme of the book of Ruth, the, the Hebrew word hesed. It's translated into our English Bibles as kindness, can also be translated as generosity, love, faithful, enduring love. And as Naomi sort of sits back and watches this unfold, sees Ruth go out there and take the initiative and sees this connection with Boaz, she recognizes that not only is Boaz a good man, but he's also a relative. And here she begins to see hope. So Naomi devises this, this plan to find Ruth a home and a husband, and subsequently to find herself a, a home as well. Now, the, here's, what's hap, here's what happens next, and then I'll kind of unpack what's going on in this whole scheme that they devise. Verse 5, Ruth says, I will do whatever you say. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet. Surprise. Who are you? He asked. I am your servant Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. <clears throat> now again, to me, my, my opinion is that this is one of the all-time great, bizarre, interesting scenes in all of Scripture. Uh, to quote Phil Tuttle, director of Walk Through the Bible, he says, the Bible always teaches messy. And one of the things that I love about the story of Ruth is just there's no attempt to sanitize these characters. Whether it's Naomi's grief, whether it's Ruth's countercultural initiative taking, whether it's their plan together to seduce Boaz, the storyteller just tells the story. The Bible always teaches messy. Now, that being said, there are some, uh, I think, fairly extreme interpretations of what is going on here in this plan that Naomi and Ruth execute. You can find uh, a number of commentators, if you do enough research, who, who go into somewhat explicit territory trying to explain what's going on here. So I'm just going to come right out and say it, all right, just to be clear here. Uncovering his feet is not a euphemism, okay? The, the interesting part about this scene is that it, the translators sort of, they do sort of sanitize Boaz. Good spirits means that he had had too much to drink, all right? <laughs> but uncovering his feet just means that. She uncovers his feet. What Ruth is doing here is initiating, but she is initiating a redemption process, not a sexual encounter. Are you with me? Now, one of the reasons I, I, I favor this sort of reading is that both Ruth and Boaz demonstrate uh, so much character, so much grace, humility, generosity. They are uh, embodiments of this idea of hesed. And, and we see this all throughout each chapter, each scene in the book of Ruth. It's just not in keeping with their characters for this to be about a hookup. So, that being said, this is a scandalous scene, but not quite scandalous in that way. So let's talk then about how this is a scandalous scene. Well, first of all, Ruth, or Naomi tells Ruth 
to go and be, be aggressive in this approach, right? Boaz, again, has a little bit too much to drink. Ruth, the initiator of the action, deeply countercultural for that day and age, still is in many parts of our world today. But I also, again, don't want us to get lost filtering this too much through our modern conceptions of dating and marriage because what is happening here is about the whole family. This is not just about a relationship between Ruth and Boaz. Ruth is inviting Boaz to fulfill his role as kinsman redeemer or guardian redeemer, depending on your translation, and to marry her and as a result to adopt Naomi and to take on her whole household. Now Ruth does this in a way that is clear, in a way that is intentional, but also in a way that is honoring and doesn't bring shame on Boaz. And we'll talk more about that here in just a second. But first, let's, let's talk about kinsman redeemer or guardian redeemer. This is terminology that's probably not familiar to a lot of us. Where does this idea come from? Well, similar to gleaning, which we looked at last week, this is not a non a random idea. This is not something that just sort of popped into their heads. Naomi here is drawing on an important safety net that God had designed into the law that he gave his people. So going all the way back to the book of Leviticus, particularly chapters 25 and 27, God lays out a couple of different ways in which uh, vulnerable people in the community were to be taken care of. Leviticus chapter 25, by the way, is a fascinating book in the Bible. If you want to just spend some time reading something interesting, read that chapter and uh, consider some of the implications of what it is saying. The bulk of the chapter is, is built around Sabbath ideas. And God had built this idea of Sabbath into the weekly rhythm, right? Take one day off a week, work the other six days. But then had also uh, implemented some, uh, some ideas about Sabbath into other rhythms of their life. There was this idea of the Sabbath year where they would farm their land for six years and then the seventh year take that off, allow the land to recover, live off the bounty of the previous six years. Then there was also this very radical idea called the year of Jubilee. And the way that this worked is that every 50 years, the whole Israelite community was supposed to hit a, a kind of reset button where... Uh, land would be re redistributed, slaves would be freed, debts would be forgiven. It's kind of a way to get everyone back to equal and to ensure that too much land, stuff, money didn't end up in one or a few hands. Now in the middle of this very radical perspective comes the idea of family redemption. And there's all kinds of ways listed out to redeem different things, whether it's houses or property or even relatives. The idea here is that for God's people, in God's family, no one should be without a family. Naomi's situation in Ruth 1.5, Naomi was left without. That's not just a statement of the facts, although it is. It's also a, a deep statement about the unacceptable status that she is in. In God's family, no one should be left without. If a husband passed away, the next of kin would adopt the widow and her property and her kids. Whatever was involved in that would become part of his household. So Ruth here is inviting Boaz to live out the redemption ideals found in Leviticus 25 and 27. Also, also 
Ruth is inviting Boaz to be the answer to his own prayer. Back in chapter 2, Boaz had said this to Ruth. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Part of the imagery of uncovering the feet and then Ruth being covered by the blanket is a reflection of this prayer. Ruth is saying, God is my refuge, but also he's provided me with you. He's using you to redeem me. So take on this role of kinsman redeemer and cover me. By the way, be careful what you pray for other people. (laughs) Because you just might be the answer to that prayer. This happens to me all the time, especially it seems like when I'm praying for my kids. You know, it's like, dear God, just would you send someone to teach them and model patience for them and speak kindly to them? And it's like, oh, that's, I'm supposed to do that. <laughs> Be careful what you pray for other people. Now, up to this point in the story, everything has kind of worked out fairly well. Naomi's plan has unfolded. Ruth executed it to perfection. Boaz is willing to take this thing on. But then there's this big plot twist in verse 12. Boaz says, although it is true that I am a guardian redeemer of our family, there is another who is more closely related than I. So stay here for the night. And in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good. Let him redeem you. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. So lie here until morning. She lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized. And she said, no one must know, or he said, no one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. Now, again, this is where some commentators get all like, oh, look at this big scandal. They want to cover it up and hide it. But I think what's going on here is that both Ruth and Boaz are protecting each other. They're protecting each other's reputation. I don't know if you guys are familiar with this concept, but in small towns, people talk right? Have you ever encountered this? (laughs) But here I think what's going on, this is less about appearances, much more about their concern to protect each other's honor. And that is a subtle difference, but I think a very important difference. It's yet another way that they are demonstrating hesed, demonstrating kindness towards each other by protecting their reputations. What should stand out the most to us, though, about this part of the story is Boaz's willingness to do what he can, to do what it takes to take on this redemption of Ruth and Naomi. And this is a really important aspect of the idea of redemption. There must be a means to redeem and then also a will to redeem. Boaz has the will. He has the desire But since he's second in line, he does not yet have the means. Finally, Ruth heads back to Naomi with the news. Ruth came to her mother-in-law. Naomi says, how did it go? She told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, he gave me these six measures of barley saying, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Naomi said, wait. Wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens. For the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. Here, we continue to see the growth and the maturity of Naomi. She doesn't panic. She doesn't freak out. She doesn't, you know, go all Eeyore, oh, nothing good ever happens to me. 
No, Naomi is confident, confident in Boaz. Her hope is uh, growing and returning, and so she instructs Ruth to wait. Initiating and waiting are both expressions of faith. Initiating and waiting are both expressions of faith. And again, it's in waiting oftentimes that God does some of his best work. Now this brings us to the, the, again, the intersection of the story with this Advent season. We've already lit the candle. We've heard that the, the theme of week three is peace. One of the titles for the Messiah used in the Old Testament, the Messiah that the people of Israel were anticipating, were waiting for, one of the titles was Prince of Peace. They were hoping for, right, waiting for this king who would return who would bring peace and stability to them. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. As we said earlier, one of the gifts of Advent is this gift of waiting, this gift of anticipation. The word Advent itself means coming. And so this season, we remember the different parts of the story where this has been true. We remember the Israelites, uh, their anticipation, they're waiting for this Messiah. We remember Mary and Joseph, their anticipation, they're waiting for this baby to be born. And we uh, also, again, we count down the days to Christmas. We anticipate opening gifts uh, or, or, or time as a family or time off from work, whatever those things are. But we also wait and anticipate Jesus' return. When he will come back and bring a lasting peace, a never-ending kingdom, where he will wipe away every tear, make right every wrong. But we also remember that we're not there yet. We're in between people. We're people who wait. I don't know a better way to describe the life of faith than that tension between initiating and waiting, between celebrating what has already happened, but also what is yet to come. And so here we're invited to join Ruth and Naomi in their waiting. They're able to wait well because they trust Boaz. They have this trust in their Redeemer. And the good news of the Christmas story, the good news of the story of salvation that God is telling in the world is that we have a true kinsman Redeemer. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption into his family through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. 
God in Jesus has both the means and the will to redeem, to rescue us, to buy us back, to restore us to right relationship with him, to adopt us as part of his family. There's no way we could have done this on our own. We did not have the means to accomplish this on our own. Jesus was always first in line, next of kin. And not only did he have the means, but then he was willing to pay the price to bring us back so that we could have peace with God. Now this brings us to the the sort of focal moment, the highlight of our gathering, our time together each Sunday is this moment that we call communion, where we reflect and remember the good news of Jesus, that he has come as a baby, that he lived among us, and that ultimately he gave his life for us so that we could have peace between God and between each other. And Boaz and Ruth were given a a picture of what God does for us. Ruth does a lot of great things. She can't redeem herself, and she cannot redeem Naomi. And in the same way, we can do a lot of great things, but we cannot redeem ourselves. We need a redeemer, and the good news is that Jesus is the redeemer we need. God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Jesus, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And so we remember this truth at the communion table, the, the bread representing Jesus' body, the blood, or, or the cup representing his blood. His blood shed on that cross that brings peace between us and God. This is God's good gift to us. Right relationship through his son. And so as we enter this moment here together this morning, what are you waiting for? What are you anticipating? How is this waiting posture forming you in the ways of Jesus? Have you accepted this good gift that God has given us? We're going to spend some time uh, reflecting on some of those questions uh, and then singing some songs. And during this time, as you feel ready, come and take uh, communion with us as we celebrate the good gift that God has given us. Let's pray. Father, we begin this moment by confessing all the ways in which we try to redeem ourselves. Through our achievements, through our hard work, through our trying to be good, whatever it might be, God, so many different ways that we have tried to justify ourselves. But the truth is that even if we might have the will to do so, we do not have the means to make things right between us and you. And so, God, then we turn to gratitude, to thankfulness for the truth that you have taken the initiative to cover our sin, to close the gap, to come towards us, to be with us, to be in relationship with us, to adopt us back into your family, to redeem us. We're grateful for Jesus, our true kinsman redeemer, 
for the gift of his life and his death and his resurrection, God. Help us to remember this. Help us to be formed by the waiting for the anticipation of when you will return and make everything right once again. God, we long for that day. We pray that that day would come quickly. In the meantime, will we live with this deep sense of peace, knowing what you have done on our behalf and also what you will do in the future. We pray all this this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.